0: you open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6, I think the page number is there in the bulletin, 300 and something. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23. 2 Kings 6, verses 8 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel he took counsel with his servants saying at such and such a place shall we camp shall be my camp but the man of god sent word to the king of Israel beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are going down there and the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of god told him thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there, more than once or twice. And the, king, and the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see." So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master." So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. In the late 1800s, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche wrote these words, God is dead. There's a commentary on how secularism and modernism were influencing society in such a way that belief in God and and religion were being pushed to the periphery of society. A little more than half a century later, on the front page of Time magazine in 1966, were these letters, Is God Dead? With a question mark. Social scientists, sociologists were looking at society in the Western world particularly and seeing that this thing that Friedrich Nietzsche had said back in the late 1800s was becoming more and more a reality. One of the best known sociologists, Peter Berger, sociology of religion uh, professor, believed that at one point, religion would become, and belief in God would become, a footnote in the pages of history. At the same time, in the same year, 1966 in China, Chairman Mao and the Gang of Four unleashed the Cultural Revolution, a reign of terror that was bent on eradicating all religion and any kind of Superstitious belief, traditional culture even, was to be replaced by something so thoroughly communist and so thoroughly Marxist that they would be able to rewrite culture itself in the country of China. What the leaders unwittingly did was they actually plowed the ground for one of the greatest revivals in church history, you see, by removing all of the things that traditionally in Chinese culture had been barriers for the gospel, they created a great emptiness in the hearts of the people. And that emptiness was filled more and more by belief in the gospel. It started in the countrysides of China and then spilled over into the cities in the 1990s, after the Tiananmen Square incident. What was intended to eradicate religion unintentionally promoted it because all the vestiges of the old belief system were systematically removed and the gospel came in and beautifully began to fill the hearts of people with hope. So this tragic story ended up being a story of faith and hope. You see, this is the way God works. In situations that seem tragic, and they are tragic, God ends up being the hero. And so there's more than just the idea of this being a silver lining, that in the midst of all this tragedy, there's this nice little glimmer of hope. It is profoundly the way that God works in the church and in the world. We see the intentions of men. We see the intentions of people. Sometimes bent on good, sometimes bent on evil. But God has things in control, and He is the one that is directing history. So that everything that has transpired in our lives, either personally or in the life of the church, even in history, are working towards a plan that is more than just a silver lining. It's more than just a consolation prize. That is the very way that God works. And we see that played out really beautifully in this passage today in Second Kings 6. I want to give you an outline, if you will, if you like taking notes. I noticed there wasn't much room on your bulletins, but if you have a little corner or something that you want to take notes on, there are really three points to this sermon. The first point actually has three themes. The three themes of the first point are warfare, which we see in this story, blinding and opening of eyes, and hospitality. All are important biblical themes that run throughout scripture in Uh, this passage and throughout the Bible. And then the second point of our outline is how Christ fulfills all of these three themes in who he is as prophet, priest, and king. And then finally, what does this mean for us today? So let's look at the first point, the three themes that I mentioned, warfare, blinding and opening eyes, and hospitality. This passage actually takes place at a time in Israel's history that we wouldn't think of as a high point. Uh, The king right now, the question throughout the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, was, was the king going to be faithful? We don't see the king portrayed necessarily as the hero in this passage. The priest is completely absent, but the prophet is a faithful man of God, Elisha who carries on the mantle from Elijah and his ministry. The first theme of warfare we see in this passage is really the threat of warfare. There isn't actually a war that takes place, but the king of Syria is bent on finding out who is messing with his plans, and someone tells him it's Elisha. So the king of Syria gathers his men together to find out where Elisha is and to seize him. So what we learn here is that there is a threat of warfare. But the theme of warfare isn't just in this passage right here. We see it throughout the Bible, really, don't we? We need to understand that warfare is an essential part of understanding the Bible, We need to see that it's not just a physical reality in a fallen world, but to see that there's also a spiritual element as it's portrayed in this passage. There's a spiritual battle going on. Throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel called to war, sometimes for reasons of judgment on the enemies of God, and other times to expand the kingdom of God. So we see it portrayed in the Old Testament oftentimes in physical ways, But always knowing, as this passage points out, that there's a spiritual reality behind that. And then in Ephesians 6.12, we read that the battle is not primarily one of flesh and blood, but of spiritual powers and principalities. I love what John Piper wrote. He once said, Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie for spiritual warfare, not a domestic intercom to increase the comforts of the saints. Piper's, in my understanding of what Piper's saying here, he's saying that oft, uh, we need to recognize, of course, that God cares about our individual needs, that He cares about our suffering, that He knows and is with us in the, in the midst of difficulties and joys, but that if we miss out, in in our understanding of prayer, on the profound way in which it is a tool of warfare, then we miss something very crucial in our understanding of what prayer really means. It is the way, the primary way, that we engage the spiritual battle that is taking place that Ephesians 6.12 talks about. And we see that beautifully portrayed in this passage. We see Elisha praying that his servant's eyes would be opened. And that's our second theme, the opening of eyes and the blinding of eyes. So the passage begins with this threat of war that the king of Syria is going to come and he comes with his troops and he surrounds the place where Elisha and his servant are. And Elisha's servant wakes up in the morning and he comes out and he does his morning stretch and opens his eyes and he sees this army surrounding him. And he does what any red-blooded Israelite would do. He freaks out. And he runs in and he tells Elisha. And Elisha is not in the least bit alarmed. And he prays that his servant's eyes would be opened to what? To the reality of the situation. And he tells him, there are more with us than there are with them. And, and Elijah's servant must have been thinking, this is some weird kind of math. Because I'm just counting two of us and there are hundreds of them out there. And then Elisha prays and his servant's eyes are open and he sees the reality of the spiritual battle And he sees that God's army is far more vast and powerful than the army of the king of Syria. And then the troops must have been coming in or moving and Elisha then does another prayer and he prays that the eyes of the army of the Syrian troops would be blinded. And so they're blinded. And at some point... Elisha begins to engage them and say, this is not what you want, I'm not the person you want to see, and this this isn't the place where you want to go. So somehow he leads them all the way to the foot of the king of Israel, Joram. And you can imagine this. These guys at this point in the Syrian army are really incapacitated. Their threat has suddenly been removed. And the army, the threat of war has suddenly been removed. And he brings them, Elisha brings them to the foot of the king of Israel. Now, although the passage doesn't say this, it's quite likely that if you're coming into the presence of the king of Israel, that he's not going to be there by himself, right? He's probably going to have his army. And so, likely, the army of Israel was surrounded, surrounding the army of Syria. And this brings us to our third point, our third theme in the first point, which is hospitality. Hospitality is more than just having a meal with someone. Hospitality is showing kindness the way the Lord calls us to. Hospitality is actually feels at times or can feel at times like we are going above and beyond the call of duty. But as a matter of fact, it is really just biblical. And that's what we see happen right here. Elisha prays that blind eyes would be open. The eyes of the Syrian army are open. And he instructs the king of Israel not to strike them down, as one might expect, but to do what? To prepare a meal for them. The opposite. To prepare a meal for the enemies of Israel. Prepare a meal for the, not only the enemies of Israel, but to prepare a meal for the enemies who are also not kosher. You see, the Assyrians were maybe distant relatives, maybe cousins, but they were certainly not kosher. And here we have the Israelites, the king, being instructed by the prophet to prepare a meal for God's for God's enemies. This is an amazing passage. But the reality is, the prophet is simply following what was stated in Proverbs 25, 21, and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you, and he does reward them hospitality bridges the lines of conflict and we know something about that in our personal lives in our body here it bridges the lines that separate us it bridges the lines of race and things that tend to cause us to not understand one another or misunderstand one another you see Again, Israel and Syria, while maybe distant relatives, were not neither, they were neither friends nor were they of the same race. And yet the prophet, filled with the Spirit of God, instructs the king to do something completely unexpected. And it is a beautiful display of how God shows his hospitality to us, his enemies, his one-time enemies. Hallelujah. And in the end of this passage, we read that there was a reward, that God blessed the nation of Israel. So how does Christ fulfill all of these themes that are so powerfully displayed for us in Second Kings chapter 6? Well, you see, Christ put an end, first of all, to the warfare in the, final, in the final battle. We know about the final battle in Revelation that's called Armageddon, which has yet to take place. But Christ is that king that does battle continually and will one day do final battle and end all battles. But in the meantime, he is the one who does battle inside of our hearts. He subdues our sin personally. And in the church, Christ is the king who leads us in this spiritual warfare against the enemies of God. Not to do physical battle with them, but through the preaching of the gospel to win the hearts of people. Just like this brother I shared about earlier in prison Christ tells us in John 16:33 he says in this world you will have tribulation but take heart i have overcome the world he's overcome the world he has overcome everything that comes against us and that doesn't mean that he will take away the difficulties and the tribulations but it means that he's here with us and that he has overcome these things the sins that so easily beset us, that we continue to struggle with. The difficulties in our life. He's there, and he is doing battle, and he is working with us. He is in us. We are united with Christ. He has fulfilled this theme. And then in Matthew 11, we see something very interesting. You see, if we look at this passage in Second Kings 6, and and go back a little bit to 2 Kings 4, we see the prophet doing something amazing. He raises the dead son of the Shunammite woman and brings him to life. And then in 2 Kings 5, he tells the commander of the Syrian army to go wash in the river and be cleaned of his leprosy. You remember these stories, right? And then in this passage, he both blinds and opens blind eyes. Now this is what in Matthew eleven five, when the prophets when the uh, when John the Baptist was in prison he sends his servants to Jesus and says, Are you the one? And Jesus tells him what? And he, he lists for him these very things the raising of the dead, the cleansing of leprosy, and the opening of eyes. You see, Elisha was just a shadow of what Jesus was going to do. Jesus said that the blind will receive sight, the lame will walk, the lepers are cleansed, all these things. And Christ fulfills this. He fulfills this as the prophet, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate king, the ultimate prophet. And then finally Christ fulfills the image of this hospitality by inviting us to this table right here. Unworthy enemies of God we were. He reached over the line that caused barrier, that was a barrier between us and God. He came down to this world, and he defeated sin and death so that we might dine With the creator of heaven and earth. And be called his friends. Brothers and sisters. That is an amazing display of hospitality. And it is a display of hospitality. That he wants us. To manifest. And to incarnate in our own lives. Not so that we can earn our salvation. Not so that we can win God's favor but so that we can actually live out who we actually are in Christ, both as individuals and as a body. And so finally, what does this mean for us? We've seen that in these three themes of warfare, blinding and opening eyes, and hospitality, that are really themes that run throughout the entire Bible, from the beginning to the end. We've seen how Christ fulfills those themes in coming and being born sinless, living a sinless life, dying an unjust death and rising on the third day, defeating sin and death. We see how he fulfills these themes in our lives and in the church. And then finally, what does this mean? What does this mean for us? I think it's fairly obvious that we are called to live out these very themes in our lives we are called to engage in the spiritual battle every single day and not be shocked by the tribulations that come into our lives i'm not saying that we need to enjoy them i'm not saying that we need to in a sense ask for more but we are to look at the tribulation that god has put into our life the the suffering the difficulties the challenges weaknesses that we ourselves have and to realize that these are fundamentally the way that God works in our lives. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says the power of God is perfected in his weakness. God's grace is sufficient for us. And so we should rejoice in our weakness because Christ came to us In that manner, as a servant, weak, humble. And we should recognize that our eyes have been opened, our blinded eyes have been opened, and that we are to look towards those around us whose eyes might be blind and pray for their eyes to be opened, whether they be family members, whether they be neighbors whether they be people in this congregation who haven't come to know the Lord yet or people that are coming on a regular basis who we might be reaching out to or even nations where we know that we are engaging through our missionaries. And then finally, the hospitality. God calls us to demonstrate a profound sense of hospitality and you know what it's it sometimes feels like we are being stretched that we we are going above and beyond the call of duty when we when we reach across lines of conflict or lines of race lines of culture into someone else's life it feels sometimes like we are going above and beyond the call of duty but in reality it's just doing what our Savior called us to do. And He gives us the strength and the power to do that. I chose the hymn this morning, Father Long Before Creation, because it's a hymn that was written in China. It was written during the Cultural Revolution that I just talked about. And I want to read this little explanation of the hymn You can read the words again. This anonymous Chinese text was initially used as a theme song by Chinese Christians who kept the faith while the Cultural Revolution was in full swing. The hymn was sung in a Bible study center in Peking during the winter of 1952 and 53. The one who translated it is a missionary named Francis Jones, who actually at one point lived in the city where we have been. And the words are profound. He translated it so that we could understand something about what they were going through. A hymn written in the midst of tribulation. So beautiful and so relevant and so true. You see, while things are happening over on the other side of the world that are difficult, sometimes it feels distant and far away. But the reality is that the tribulations that Christians on the other side of the world are going through and the tribulations that we go through, while they might be different, the same Lord is walking through them with us. I want to end with a, a note. And if I would just simply ask if this is being recorded, that the recording end right now.